And so we're going to focus today on a series of Proverbs that have to do with anger, conflict, and peace. And since we're talking about peace, I thought this would be a good opportunity for me at the end then to talk about this book, which is a best-selling book. It's come out by Dr. Arthur Brooks. I've mentioned him before. Incredible individual uh, who was a professor at Syracuse University. Then he was the head of the American Enterprise Institute. Now he's at Harvard uh, and the Kennedy School for Government and also the Harvard MBA program. And it really talks about peace and happiness. And it's really kind of an incredible compilation of all the things we know about happiness and how people can be happy. I notice that there's a university now doing happiness studies. I don't know how rigorous it's going to be, but nevertheless, we'll talk about some of that as well. And so we'll go through these proverbs dealing with such issues as anger, conflict, and how we can have peace. We'll talk about a book that we, um, in fact, when I did the interview, Suzanne was listening to it and said, we need to buy that book for our son, for our son-in-law, and a number of others. And as I go through this, I'm thinking some of you are going to say, yeah, maybe I want to get a book uh, by Dr. Arthur Brooks on that. But let's, first of all, spend a little bit of time, and these verses jump around, so if you've got a Bible, uh, see if you can follow along with me. It's one of those sword drills, but we're going to spend some time looking at a couple of passages. And I'll start off with uh, chapter... 14, verse 29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. That's not a very good recommendation there. Then chapter 15, verses 17 and 18, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fatted ox and hatred with it. And it goes on to even say, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. So I think we're seeing a trend here about uh, really wanting to make sure that we can hold our tongue. Chapter 16, verse 32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, but he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. And then finally, a little bit longer passage in chapter 22 Uh, where we are going to be looking at a couple of issues, one of which, of course, is this whole idea of friendship. Verse 24, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. So this first third that we look at here is a reminder that God's people are slow to anger. And we see that in God's character. Because what we sometimes get from the non-Christian world is the Old Testament God is full of anger. And then we often hear them say, well, then the God of the New Testament is actually a God of love. And so somewhere between the Old Testament and the New Testament, God took some Prozac and everything is fine, you know, which is, of course, not true. But nevertheless, let's go back and look at this because here Exodus 34 puts it this way. God actually said that he is merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If you think about this, this holy God is looking down and demonstrates his character, even as people betray him, even as individuals turn away from him, even as people blaspheme him, God is what? Slow to anger. So the implication of that is, is we should be that as well. If you're taking some notes, you might put down James 1.19. I think this is a verse that should be plastered at almost any of these cable news networks where they have the contentious arguments all the time. Because here, James says this, 
that we should, as believers, be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. You heard the old illustration, we have two ears and one mouth, maybe that tells us something. And so again, we uh, can see that James oftentimes has been described as the book of wisdom in the New Testament. Of course, Proverbs is the book of wisdom, so is Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, but it reflects the same kind of wisdom that we see there. I even used that illustration last week as well. And so we should be reflecting God's character as individuals who are slow to anger is certainly the implication there. Now, anytime you're, of course, in a relationship with another human being, whether it's a friendship or a marriage or a business or even a church a group of individuals, you come sooner or later, you're going to experience conflict and disagreement. And so that is the case. So we can't avoid that. So the question is, given the fact that conflict is inevitable, how do we deal with it? And again, when you practice being slow to anger and you take time to think through the conflict and handle it appropriately, this can in many cases make your relationship stronger. You know, you see every day couples going down to a magistrate wanting to eventually get a divorce for problems that other couples decide to work through and their relationships is stronger. And so you see that same kind of idea. Now, at the same time, let me just hasten to say, being slow to anger doesn't mean that we ignore conflict. Anger itself isn't sinful. Jesus obviously displayed anger. Um, how about that message today about God and government? Now, as you were listening to that, I've had a few of you say, that relates a little bit to anger. Because, you know, here Pastor Graham told us what government should be. And then you turn on your television, set up in the newspaper, and this is the government we have. Well, I think there is a sense in which we can have righteous anger. If Jesus was anger over sin and injustice, I think it is appropriate for us to have a righteous anger. And there are certainly things today in our culture that should bother us. And when you have a Supreme Court nominee that has difficulty defining what a woman is, you can recognize that we have taken many values and inverted them. And so we, as believers sometimes, can be angry. We can be frustrated. That's an understanding there. So that's not what the Bible is talking about. Certainly not what it's talking about here in Proverbs, because this concept of being easily angered, you've been around somebody like that, haven't you? A hothead, just, you know, a trigger finger on the anger button, right? Just boom, you know. And, of course, letting everything bother them in ways that Jesus wouldn't. So, again, when we look at this idea of anger, I want to, on the one hand, say there is a place for righteous anger. But sometimes I see people using that as an excuse for the fact they're always angry. And that's not what it's talking about. And I think we have mature enough believers in this group here to understand where that line is drawn. But with that, let's get on to the next point, and that is we want to talk about being peacemakers. How do we handle that particular issue? And Proverbs 6 really takes us into a section here about what it really means to spend some time understanding what peacemakers are. But first, we're going to look at what God hates. In chapter 6, verses 16 and following, there are six things that the Lord hates, Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. 
pretty long list. And in just a minute, we'll talk about how, in some respects, if you read the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, you can see that ultimately Jesus is really trying to explain to us the answer to each one of those. We'll get to that in just a minute. Let's go on to chapter 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And you've heard the phrase, love covers a multitude of sins. This is, of course, where it's, again, referring to this as well. Chapter 16, verse 7. When a man's way pleased the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. You know, that's the idea of being a peacemaker there as well. And then we also have in that same chapter, verse 28. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. Then we have in verse 20, verse 3, another concept. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. And then finally, a section in chapter 29, which uh, once again helps us understand some of these ideas. Verse 22. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. And if you find yourself saying, I'd like to read these again, by the way, we still have some of these uh, Proverbs, little booklets on Proverbs in the Living Version, and there's extra there if you would like to take those and use those. Stick them in your purse, stick them in your uh, wallet, or uh, wherever it might be, stick them in your car. That's a way you can look at this. But first of all, let's go back to those. Seven things Proverbs 6 says God hates. These are specific, they're personal attitudes and particular actions. But again, some people have said if you look at the things that God hates, and then you go to the New Testament and see how Jesus talks about this in the Beatitudes, blessed are they, you sort of see what could be an interesting contrasting parallel arrangement of the two. And so again, we see those seven blessed things that Jesus talks about, uh, which answer the seven hated things. And when we see that God uh, says, and where Jesus says, blessed are, some of those could actually be happy are they, and I'm going to talk about happiness in just a minute. Now, again, that should be part of the church. A loving community, like the church, should be one that shows peace and harmony. When there's conflict... How do we work through it? Well, with a humble, kind, and gracious way of doing so. And when we see a church full of quarreling, and I think some of you have been around churches. If not, I can tell you some great stories. Or you can go to the Probe website. We've got a couple of things on uh, spiritual abuse and when churches uh, abuse uh, programs that we've done in the past you can see that that is due to churches not submitting to the Holy Spirit and demonstrating love for one another. Matter of fact, the first church that we read about is in the book of Acts, and in Acts 4, what do we see? There are one heart and one soul. These are thousands of individuals from all over Asia Minor uh, that all were gathered together, different ethnic groups, different racial groups, different religious groups all together. And what does it say about that first church? They were all of what? One heart and one mind and one soul. And so again, I think that is an illustration, once again, of the resurrection. We've talked about that before. As a matter of fact, the other day, one of our guests was talking about how, again, when you see that here you had disciples that were quarreling with one another... 
uh, the second season of The Chosen gives us a fair amount of that, doesn't it? And then all of a sudden now they're all working together. When you have a bunch of disciples that were scattered uh, during the crucifixion, and then on the day of Pentecost, Peter is standing on those very steps speaking to those individuals, something happened. And of course we know what that is. And again, I might just point out that just uh, being a peacemaker doesn't mean just always to go along to get along. Uh, this false sense of unity is not right, but again, we are to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. I mean, some of us in the room here, we want peace at any price. So we'll just go, well, never mind, it's not important, you know, we, and that's not what it's saying. We should be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. That's not original to me, that was actually in the commentary. I thought it was a good turn of phrase. But again, making peace is not easy or simple. It takes a great deal of humility and patience and wisdom. There are various Christian ministries today that have grown up to help people deal with conflict, sometimes in the business world, sometimes in the church world. And again, those principles we find certainly in Scripture. Well, before we get to our application, let's look at these last few verses, because we talk about how when you have a conflict, there are more recommended ways to diffuse that conflict. And first of all, in chapter 15, probably one of the most famous Proverbs, verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And so it's a reminder that sometimes we have to be careful with our words. Let's go look at verse 18. We've mentioned that before. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. And then we get over into verse 17. And verse 17, verse 14 talks about um, the beginning of strife is letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. And then we have one other one in verse 26, and I will mention one other one I just skipped in the interest of time. But in chapter 26, verse 17 and following, whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I am only joking. You ever heard that before? You know, it says something really hoarse mean, and then said, oh, just joking, you know. Again, for lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. A lot of great illustrations there, and I love the metaphors. We'll get to those in just a minute. But first of all, a tense situation. I'm sure you've been in some situation where everybody's really tense, and by being calm... Maybe you weren't in that case, but maybe you were. Maybe you saw someone by calmly speaking to the issue, it diffuses that situation. And we've seen some times where, again, instead of a harsh word, a soft word calms things down. And we've all been in those situations and seen that. And then he uses a number of illustrations. Uh, the idea of stirring up, letting water out of a dam, adding fuel to a fire, and grabbing a dog's ears. Let's take each one real quickly. The word stir up is probably, as I said in my notes there, uh, probably better translated kind of stir up like it for anger or like an attack. 
Think of Ukraine right now. Again, we should be praying for what has happened in Ukraine. This has become unbelievably devastating. But again, this idea of attack, uh, stirring it up, meddling in a situation. And we have that idiom in English, don't we? We talk about what? Stirring up a hornet's nest. You ever wanted to do that? I hope not, because the concept, uh, the uh, reaction to that is never very positive. That is certainly the case. Then it talks about um, meddling in somebody's uh, quarrel is like grabbing a dog by its ears. Does anybody remember a president that grabbed a dog by their ears? Okay, I see a few smiling. Lyndon Baines Johnson. Remember when he grabbed the dog's ears? Okay, the people with gray hair know this, and the younger ones in the back of the room go, I don't know, you have no clue what that's about. Okay, why? Because you grab dog by its ears, you might get bitten. And again, this is the concept here, and we might not only end up causing harm to others, you might hurt yourself. Then finally, it says that another example is sometimes once a fight breaks out, it's like water out of a dam. And again, that rush of water destroys everything in its path. And so, you know, we talk about sometimes breaking the dam and in it comes back and all of a sudden now the water which was controlled and contained now rushes out. So I love these metaphors because, again, what the advice from Solomon is, sometimes you can stop a quarrel before it gets too far down the road. And we've all seen situations where once a quarrel gets out of out of. Uh, uh, at a, matter of fact, there was one the other day. I don't know if you saw this, but this is at a buffet where they ran out of steak and you saw people throwing chairs at each other. Did any of you see that? I mean, it was just the craziest thing. And you just say somewhere along the line, somebody had to have prevented that. Uh, but nevertheless, that's another story of, again, how once it just gets out of hand, people start doing really stupid things. And, of course, we've seen this with the riots that took place in the past. Same thing, a fire in a fireplace really contained. A fire outside of the fireplace, we got a house down the street that had a fire and they've been trying to redo that fire, uh, fired up and burnt out house for months now. And again, he's basically saying, just recognize that your words can either fuel a fire or they can put it out. And I thought I would connect it back again to James. Remember James talking about the fact that in James chapter 3, the tongue is what? Like a fire. There's a real parallel between some of the Proverbs and James. And so next time you read uh, James, you might want to think back on some of those in Proverbs. And finally, how do we apply this? Well, first of all, it seems to me that we should choose our words carefully, especially in a conflict, to remain calm, to remain rational, and actually, as it says in Colossians, to speak the truth with grace. Sometimes that's hard when your emotions are going. I understand that. But I think that is what we are called to do. James says no human being can tame the tongue. So obviously to do this, we need to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit in our lives. We must remember that each step, each day, we should be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Be dependent upon his leading in our life. Pray for power to stay calm, to mediate conflict, and to make peace. And I recognize that some of you will, in the next couple of weeks, will be going into conflict in the business world, in your extended family, maybe even in your marriage, maybe with your roommate, whatever. And I think these are very important principles to take. And that's why, again, we see such wisdom from Solomon in the Proverbs. With that, for the few minutes we have left, 
Let me, if I can, take some material from the book by Arthur Brooks. I think very highly of him. First of all, he is an individual that was, he was first chair French horn in some of the greatest symphonies around. Uh, Fred can appreciate what that would take to be at that level. And then just simply says, you know, I'm done with that. Walks away, gets his PhD, is at uh, Syracuse, writes a book on the fact that we have lots of evidence that conservatives actually give more than liberals. Liberals talk about it, but conservatives actually give more. Time, um, their um, money, obviously, ties. But even as I've told you, some of you give uh, blood. They said that if liberals gave blood at the level that conservatives did, we wouldn't have a blood shortage in America. So anyway, I wrote that book. Has written a number of books about capitalism and socialism. More recently, as he got into the whole issue of happiness, uh, he documented with all sorts of studies showing that one of the keys to happiness is earned success. Individuals, for example, that have inherited money from their family or individuals that won the lottery are quite as happy don't have as much meaning in their life as those people that have worked to build a business and be successful. So anyway, this book really gets into some of the principles that we can actually discern from the research that has been done in social science. Many of the studies I'm going to mention in passing, almost none of them were done by Christians. But nevertheless, people doing research say, why are these people happy? And these people are not happy. What is are some of the keys to happiness? And he found that, first of all, part of it is that um, we sometimes reach a point where we have a midlife reevaluation. The first half of life, we have a simple formula for success. Work, 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 you know. But then eventually people begin to discover the second half of life is governed by different rules. A very good book came out a years ago called Halftime. But nevertheless, in this, he actually suggests that the reason he got into this was because of a man on a plane who changed my life. And he says, you know, I was on a late night flight from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. And in the back, he's hearing this conversation. He couldn't avoid it because the man is complaining. Finally, his wife says, oh, stop saying it would be better that you were dead. And so he says, well, I'm starting thinking this is an individual that probably, as an individual, lived in relative obscurity, was disappointed with his dreams unfulfilled. And he's hearing this whole conversation about it would be better if I'm dead. He's so discouraged and all the rest. The lights come on. He looks back. He doesn't tell us who it is. But he said he is a well-known individual, very famous an individual universally beloved as a hero for his courage, patriotism, and accomplished for many decades. I've admired him since I was young. As you walk by, the a pilot even acknowledges him saying, Sir, I've admired you since I was a little boy. An older man um, actually was beaming at that. But he said, how is somebody who has accomplished so much at the end of his life convinced that he was a complete and utter failure? It'd be better he was dead. And so he goes through and then reminds us that in one of the chapters, your professional decline is coming much sooner than you think. And he talks about Charles Darwin. You know, Charles Darwin was, of course, best known for writing The Origin of Species. But after that, it all kind of fell apart. And he never really gained any uh, particular insights afterwards. He did write, of course, the one on uh, human evolution and the rest, the descent of man. But, you know, he, in a sense, just kind of hit and dropped. And they found that most of the really successful people in business usually are successful about 20 years into their career, and then they fade dramatically because there's two kinds of intelligence. 
The first is what's called fluid intelligence, and there's a graph from his uh, book in which it kind of gets good, but then it gets not so good. And as a result, they aren't successful. And there's a second kind of intelligence, and that's what he calls crystallized intelligence. That's where you start using your skills to manage others and begin to use a different set of goals and gifts. And I think is one of the things I think is so appropriate about the examine class is we got every area of life, don't we? I mean, I love the open division. We've got some of you that are retired. Some of you are about to retire. Some of you in mid-career. Some of you about ready to start your career. We have some that have been married and d- divorced. We have some that are still married. We have some that are just getting married. Um, and we have all sorts of examples of that. And in some respects, wherever you are on this pattern, I think you could benefit from this. Now, I'll warn you, he's really more of a little bit of a right hemisphere creative type. It wasn't until he wrote, I, I did the interview with him that I realized that basically what he has in this book are seven principles. But unlike writing it the way, say, Chuck Swindoll would write it, you know, Chuck Swindoll is the master exhorter. Here are the seven principles, and then each chapter is titled, no, you just wander through that, and by the end you go, oh, I get it, those were the seven principles. So I've tried to bring a little structure to this uh, so that you can follow along, especially if you buy the book. He's such a storyteller, sometimes he forgets that people need to know where we are. First chapter uh, that gets into the principles is this. Kick your success addiction. And he points out that the one of the reasons so many people that they have done interviews with are actually very unhappy is because they are actually climbing the ladder to success only at the end to find that it was leaning against the wrong wall. And he has this great story of this woman that was outstanding in Wall Street who actually was talking about uh, the fact that she probably needed to spend time trying to resuscitate her marriage. She's probably drinking a little too much. She wasn't getting enough sleep. Uh, She had just a very weak relationship with her college-age kids. And so finally he said, well, wouldn't you want to make some changes? The example he said is, you might love bread, but if you're gluten intolerant, you'd stop eating it because it makes you sick, right? So she thought about that for a minute. She says, well, maybe I prefer to be special rather than happy. And he was shocked by that. But she says, look, you know, anybody can be happy. They can go on vacation, spend time with their family and friends. But not everyone can accomplish great things. And so she was well aware of the fact that she was striving so hard. And again, we have a lot of type A people in this class, right? And sometimes we push, 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 push. And what he points out is, is that sometimes we almost get addicted to success. We get addicted to work or workaholism. One of the quotes he has, since he now teaches at Harvard Business School, is the average CEO spends 62 hours a week whereas the average worker spends maybe 44 hours a week. And so one of those things that uh, certainly contributes to unhappiness is just constantly pushing you where you're, in some respects, at an empty tank, but you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Well, that's pretty obvious. Let's take another one. talks about stop chipping, uh, start chipping away on some of your expectations. He says, you know, we all know what a bucket list is, right? Well, if you type in bucket list on Google, you get 80 million hits. 
And some of you have bucket lists. You know, if you like to travel, certain countries you want to go to. Maybe you have uh, uh, certain things that you would like to um, accomplish in your business. Uh, maybe you've always wanted to uh, go to this particular area, achieve this particular position in the company, uh, get a second home, whatever it might be. And the problem with that is, is we have an equation that says success equals getting what you want. Or success is continually having more than others. you got to love a guy that's quoting from the Rolling Stones. I ain't getting no satisfaction, right? He says some time talking about why that song actually uh, actually resonates. I don't get no satisfaction. My English teacher wouldn't like that. But nevertheless, the idea is sometimes what you need to do is chip away with some of the things you thought would make you happy and do what he calls a reverse um, bucket list. Think about where I'd like to be. Think about where you'd like to be five years from now. For some of us that are old or just alive, it'd be a good thing. But, you know, you know, five years from now, I'd like to be happy. And what would make me happy? What would be the point where five years from now I would be happy and I would be fulfilled? And then do a reverse timetable and say, what are some things that will get me to that area of happiness? Now, again, he takes you through all sorts of other research and stuff. I'm making this easy. This is the, actually the Cliff's Notes version of this. But just think about if indeed you aren't happy, you're not satisfied, you don't feel like your life is meaningful, what would that look like? And then obviously take the steps to get there. That's pretty simple. Third one, ponder your death. Okay. But again, it's interesting. He was talking to one CEO said, well, I'm not going to decline. I'll just go harder and harder and harder until the wheels come off. Work, 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 then you croak, is how he puts it in the book. Okay, and he even points out that Walt Disney himself just feared death for all sorts of reasons. It's a fascinating story in there. And after he did Steamboat Willie, remember that one, Mickey Mouse? The next one he did was these dancing skeletons because of the, the this haunting of death. Uh, he had actually killed an owl, and there's an owl in that. It tells the whole story. I did not know anything of that. And he produced that one. And there are people that wrote back to his brother. What was it? What was the brother's name? Um, Walt, it was Walt's Ralph Disney. And uh, said, if you do another one of these, you're going to bankrupt us. And so he decided to put that aside. But he then went to palm readers and all sorts of other things. And there's a sense in which you really have to make sense of your death. You think of the number of funerals we've had in this room. Think of the number of weddings we've had in this room. Sometimes what it is really appropriate to do is to say, as you think of your future, what would I want somebody to say about me at my funeral? I know that sounds kind of morbid, but another individual, David Brooks, who writes for the New York Times, is not related at all that I know of to Arthur Brooks, but he wrote a book a while back called The Road to Character, in which he talks about the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Eulogy virtues, he was a kind man, he was a giver, uh, he was doing all that he could uh, to make a difference in the community. What are resume virtues? Well, he had more frequent flyer miles than anybody ever met. <laughs> Has anybody ever mentioned that at a funeral? You know, he was achieved, you know, this level of expertise in that particular field. I mean, you can see, think about, in some respects, what is going to be your eulogy? And I think it's another very interesting chapter in the book. Let's keep going. Cultivate the Aspen Grove. 
Now, if you look at Aspen, they're beautiful, but you realize something very quickly. They all are connected to each other. For those of you that grew up in California and went through John Muir, the red roots are all connected to each other. And there's a sense in which this individual tree is part of an enormous root system. And one of the chronic issues that has surfaced time and time again in all sorts of studies is the quickest way to make you, you unhappy is to live a lonely life. Now, we've just been through a pandemic and a lockdown, so loneliness is a big issue. And I recognize some of you are here as singles. I hope that you'll continue to be part of this because we want to be part of your extended family. And Parker's done just an outstanding job of having different events to bring. Yeah, thank you. You know, for the fact that we really want to provide you with a context for this. And Suzanne was just meeting with somebody yesterday. She is very lonely right now. She lives by herself. She works in the school system. And, you know, we encourage her to come here or somewhere. Because, again, so interesting, the Harvard study of adult development, and I won't take you through any of these studies, but this one was interesting because you had 638 men from all walks of life, and they identified seven different predictors of being happy. Well, some of them are obvious. Don't smoke, don't drink, be healthy, da, 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 da. But one of the most significant was the last one, connection, relationships. You know, what kind of relationships do you have? Marriage, business, outside of business, in the community, those kinds of things. And when you talk about the lonely American male, you know, we've got too many people that are lone rangers. And I always jokingly say, even... Lone Ranger at Tonto. I mean, come on. We are actually so disconnected, and our goal here, as important as the teaching is, is to provide a context for you to connect up to others. And I'd have to say that a few of you might even say, look, I'm as close to the people in the exam class as I am to my own family. I've heard a few of you say, actually, I'm much closer to the people in the exam class than I am to my family, and that's a good thing. That's a testimony again to Parker and to Fred and others. Okay, this is hard to pronounce. He every once in a while dips into what some of the Hindus are saying, because we can learn from them as well. And he says, start your vanaprastha. And you say, what is that? Well, he takes you through each one of these stages that are described in the Indian Hindu world. The first stage is where your youth and young adulthood. The second stage is the idea of building a family and career. But the third stage is a vanaprastha, which is devoted to wisdom. It actually comes from two words, which means forest and retire. That is, individuals sometimes in their latter life, they go out into the forest to contemplate that. Some of them actually join a monastery, become a monk, because they're trying to, in a sense, figure out, what's this all about? When you're young, you just go do it. But later on, you're saying, why am I here in the first place? And that's part of that kind of midlife evaluation, you know. Some of you have changed careers in midlife, haven't you? That's been a, probably a positive thing. But again, he points out the fact that if we're believers, then if nothing else, we should recognize that all that we do is for the glory of God. And because he's a musician, no doubt, he uses the fact that every one of the pieces, the scores written by Johann Sebastian Bach, is Sola Dele Gloria, Glory to God Alone. And he says a lot of people actually suffer from what he called the Nicodemus Syndrome. Remember Nicodemus, first time he comes to Jesus, meets him in the middle of night, uh, hopes nobody sees him. Later on, he shows up a little bit to try to defend Jesus, 
And at the end, he's there actually fully committed. And a lot of people, you know, you know I want to be just Christian enough that I'm saved, but not so that my coworkers know that I am, you know, the first part of Nicodemus. It's kind of an interesting uh, series of discussions he has there as well. Two more real quickly. Make your weakness your strength. He asked early on in the chapter, who was the most successful entrepreneur in history? He says, the Apostle Paul. He took all the things that were being said at the time, all the ideas, the teachings of Jesus, and put it in a systemic way. As a matter of fact, this whole systematic uh, study, systematic theology, we've been studying in church. The book of Romans is probably the most systematic study of theology that you can get. And who wrote that? Well, Paul wrote 12 other epistles as well. And so in some respects, he was so successful. But if you go back and say, why was he successful? Well, Paul answers it. In 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about the fact that he is successful because there was a thorn in his life that he prayed that God would take from him and God did not. Now, we always around seminary speculate what the thorn is. Lots of possibilities. Some people think it might be eyesight because he's blinded by Jesus or whatever, but we don't know. It's quite obvious that almost everybody that he was writing to knew what it was. I'm kind of glad we've lost that because then it doesn't make that thorn that you might have the more divine thorn. But he actually talks about then that God tells him that my strength is perfected in what? Your weakness. And so in some respects, recognize that this weakness that you might have might be something God could actually use to make you successful from a biblical point of view. Maybe not successful from the world point of view, but also to make you what? Happy. And so it's interesting that so many times these secular social scientists are coming up with answers that actually they'd find right there in the Bible itself. One more real quickly. And that is, cast into the falling tide. Now, again, you have to be a fisherman. Uh, Parker would know this. Maybe some people that have actually been fishing on the Pacific coast would know this, especially. And that is, he was one time fishing, because he grew up in Seattle, and he would never catch anything. And so finally, a fisherman came up here and said, well, the problem is you're casting at the wrong time. Because he would cast as the water would come in. And he says, no, cast as the water is going out. Because the fish are actually waiting for the plankton to come to them. And so he recognized the idea that you cast until it goes down there. And so ultimately it is to, as he uses this as an illustration, liminality. There's a new word for you today. That's the word for the day. And that is the idea that we have to be ready for change. And that oftentimes we are facing certain kinds of changes. We always heard about people talking about midlife crisis. That was done by a researcher at Yale University that actually found that around 40 to 45, most men had kind of a midlife change. Sometimes it was even a midlife crisis. And the person that actually coined the term liminality is Bruce Feller. Life in the transitions, mastering change at any age. Because life is full of change, isn't it? You know, you are probably a lot different if you're 40 than you were at 20. Those of us that are in the 60s and 70s, a lot different than we were in our 40s uh, in terms of age, in terms of ability, all sorts of things. And a person can really master that change. And I like what he says. It doesn't always have to be a crisis. 
You know, back in the 1980s, almost every book coming out was on, you know, midlife crisis. Probably the classic one was Gail Sheehy's book, Passages, Predictable Crisis in Adult Life. But there is a sense in which you've been traveling down the road to success. But somewhere, you're going to maybe switch to a different lane and now travel down the road to significance. And those are important. And so, again, if I haven't convinced you yet, this book really does have so much great material from researchers. But again, as we talked about just a few minutes ago in terms of archaeology, isn't it encouraging, first of all, that when we dig into the ancient world and find these archaeological finds, it confirms the Bible. But isn't it even more amazing that when individuals who could not sign the doctrinal statement of Prestonwood Baptist Church, nevertheless, are finding research that say, you know, maybe that Bible's pretty accurate after all. Parker?